Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we talk to the world's most creative people. I'm your host, Sourdough, coming at you yet again from our studios in Los Angeles, Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. I'm so happy to be here with you again today. I have a really special, awesome conversation for you. So a while back, I talked to you about Smart Talks events that we're producing here in L.A., Smart Talks being empowering discussions for artists. We take on hot, relevant topics that artists want to know about. We bring in experts and we talk about those topics and we all learn and grow. And so this last Saturday, we had a fantastic Smart Talk that I want to share with you today because it is very timely and it's a very fluid environment. Fluid topic changes almost daily. So I want to get this information to you sooner rather than later, because I know you guys need to know about this stuff. So what the heck is it about? Well, let me tell you, today's episode is all about NFTs and crypto and Web3. Okay, so, you know, turns seems like every time we turn around, right, we're hearing about these technologies and how they're impacting the art world or changing the business for artists and so on and so forth. But what the heck? WTF with NFTs. (laughs) So I wanted to take on the topic. We produce Smart Talks. Has digital art finally earned respect was the name of the Smart Talk. The subtitle being how Web3, NFTs, AR, VR, AI, and the metaverse are impacting the art world. Well, we didn't really get into AR, VR, and AI too much. But boy, did we go deep on NFTs and crypto and Web3. And this panel of experts was fantastic. Our returning champion was Ronnie Paravino. Ronnie's been on the podcast before. Great guy, real expert, works with Christie's in helping them manage their NFT practice and working with collectors there. And so Ronnie's a sage expert. We have on the panel Daniel Nomad who of Nomad Gallery here in Los Angeles. Uh, Daniel's super smart, really love this guy, and what they're doing at Nomad Gallery is super cool and important and very groundbreaking, so definitely check out Nomad Gallery here in Los Angeles, 
And then lastly, the one and only Rad Laser Falcon. Yes, you heard it. The coolest name ever, Rad Laser Falcon. Incredible curator, producer in the NFT space, in the Web3 space. And so we had a huge conversation. Uh, it was like a runaway freight train. <laughs> it was like we went, we went geeked out on this stuff. It's like a whole nother world, a whole nother language, parallel universe here. And you're going to hear it all. You're going to hear it all in today's episode. And I'm just really grateful to bring you this special episode because it's a special episode. The audio is a little different, right? Because we're recording the panel discussion. You'll hear me introducing the panel to the audience and you'll hear me introducing the panelists to the audience. The audio is pretty good. It's not perfect. So bear with it, but you'll get the information and you'll, I think, learn a lot and be inspired and generally, the Smart Talks were awesome. We had three panels on Saturday. And we talked about the power of story and selling art. We talked about whether or not public art can save the world. And we talked about digital art. And so without further ado, let's get into the Smart Talk and hear from these amazing experts, Ronnie Pervino, Daniel Nomad, Rad Laser Falcon. And let's discuss whether or not digital art has finally earned respect. So without further ado, let's get into this and hear from these amazing humans. We're gonna pivot now into our second panel, which I get the privilege of moderating. And this topic is a hot one because it feels like every time we turn on the news or maybe pick up an article, we're hearing about things like NFTs and Web3 and Metaverse. And so I wanted to take on this topic head on, and I was able and, and lucky enough to assemble a panel of experts here today because it is Smart Talks, and you can't have Smart Talks without experts. So I want to introduce Daniel Nomad from Nomad Gallery. Daniel, please come. I want to introduce Ronnie Pervino. Please, Ronnie. And a person who may have the coolest name ever, Rad Laser Falcon. Please come. And I am so uh, grateful and excited to talk about this topic. I want to start by asking the audience, asking you guys, who here has a crypto wallet? Okay, about half. Who here actually has crypto in the crypto wallet? Okay, all right, ooh, tough week. And who here owns an NFT? Right, all right. Because it is, for those of us who are sort of, you know, obviously in the arts, I mean, it's a, our socialization, right, around these topics might be different than the sort of average bear out there because, you know, most people, where are we now, guys, in terms of most people having a crypto wallet? Because from what I understand, most people do not have a crypto wallet. Is that still true? I'd say so. Yeah. It's still, you know, early. I mean, it's funny how people talk about, you know, these stages and there's terms for them like mm -hmm. being early and mainstream wise, it's still quite an early stage. Right. We're in. I look at this every once in a while. And I think the last time I looked, there was 700 million crypto wallets worldwide. Personally, amongst the people that I know, people own three and four and five. <laughs> so if you think about the world's population and how many people are actually banked, mm -hmm. like traditional banking mm -hmm. and finance, and how many people have like traditional banking accounts, mm -hmm. 
that's a tiny, tiny, tiny drop in the bucket. I mean, I know people who have upwards of like 10 wallets. So, you know, if we're looking at just crypto wallets, that's like, there's almost no global adoption. Right. Whatsoever. Also, it's just, you know, think about a bank account. You have a bank account with Wells Fargo and you have your primary checking, your kid's college account, your savings account. You could have a hundred accounts. You could have a hundred wallets and it's easier to create a crypto wallet. You just press the plus button and it adds another wallet and you name it and now you have another wallet. So mm-hmm. the metrics, I think, skew in favor of way more people having wallets than actually do. Then, okay. then, are people, then there are people. <laughs> right, right. Well, and, okay. So, by the way, this is a teachable moment for me. Yeah. By the way, this is a, I'm learning a lot already. So, why would I have 10 different wallets? Is that for 10 different currencies? Like, well, why, why would I do that? That's a great question. That's a great question. And it's really, it's actually part of the unfortunate time that we're in where we have to navigate through a bunch of risk and we have to really acknowledge this level of personal responsibility when when you're dealing with crypto and NFTs that that doesn't exist in any other, you know, part of the financial system. So we we have to have multiple wallets to literally protect what we have because of the scenario where, you know, one wrong click can lead to Oof, a major loss. That's a lot of stress, man. <laughs> I'm clicking a lot of wrong things all the time. You're your own banker. I mean, that's what it is. There's no FDIC. There's no. So you think about like all of the things that we do that are irresponsible <laughs> with our traditional banking because we're FDIC insured. We have recourse. We can call the customer service, whatever. You lose your. What is it? I can't remember. There's your like seed a phrase? Your, your, no, but you lose your seed <laughs> phrase. But seed phrase is how you get into it. But I think I remember reading something like an insane number. Like there's like, I don't know. I want to say a billion dollars of locked up yeah. crypto assets where nobody can recover them because you are your own banker. So if you lost your seed phrase, if you lost your password, if you lost your whatever it is, you know, all one of these little steps along the way, it's a really friction filled experience. So I think that that keeps a lot of people out. There's of a lot it. of anxiety involved. Mm-hmm. You're, I have so much anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I mean, well, and it's a, it's, a, yeah. it's a conundrum, right, uh, Daniel? Yeah, just to, to weigh in, there's, there's another use case for a digital wallet that's different from the wallet that's in my back pocket or your bank account. It's also an extension of your identity, right? So what you have in your wallet is a way for you to show what you care about, you know, what you allocate money towards. You that's know, an what, interesting aspect, what, that right? public-facing... It becomes, Aspect. A, it becomes an extension of your identity in a way, the same way that Instagram does. You know, I, the example that I've given a couple of times that resonates with me is when you think of Pinterest and you think of people finding different photos or different things and you put together a board, it extends who you are and what you care about and what you like and what you think is cool in a way. It kind of shows someone who you are, but it takes it to another level when ownership is tied to displaying what you care about, right? And so a digital wallet, you actually own the things that are in your wallet. And I would take that more seriously about you or you if you had things that you own in your wallet versus what was on your Pinterest page or what was on Instagram, right? Right. And so you have different wallets because maybe you have one wallet that, you know, is the artwork that you're buying from your community. Or maybe you have one wallet where there are investments that you're not trying to show the world that you own. It's something that you want to keep in your back pocket and you don't want to... Right. So it's think of them as like folders of ownership. So, right. Well, that was my next thing because the word wallet might be a little bit right. sort of confusing because sure you can put money in it, but you can put other kinds of assets in it or collections or whatever. So it almost ends up kind of being like a portfolio or a storage box of some kind. Right. 
Okay. And you have the like, if you're doing it right, you should have one wallet that's just your minting wallet. So you don't really have any high value assets in it. Maybe you have airdrops or things like that, but something that you don't really care about because you could be t connecting to malicious sites or you could be doing mm -hmm. the wrong thing or moving too quickly. So it's amazing how many people I talk to and they're like, I don't have any of that. I'm like, don't have a cold wallet. Don't have a minting wallet. Don't move the high value assets into something else because the reason you want to do that too is oftentimes if you have a high value asset, like an ape, for example, that allows you access to things. You need to connect that ape mm -hmm. to prove that you have that ownership that unlocks some sort of other value, whether it be getting the coin from ape or going to an event or being able to purchase exclusive apparel or things like that. You should never keep that in. Like it should come out of your ledger or like and then into a, a hot wallet or do from your ledger and not have anything else tied to that. Right. Just the same way as if you had a million dollars, you're not going to be like, here's my debit card. Yeah, you know, by like. The way, by the way, this is, I, you know, like the detail that you're giving is so exactly right. And we all have had so many of these types of conversations. And it's because we're early, it's because the technology is not there, the awareness isn't there. I remember burning CDs, right? And I would, you know, that whole process, you would take the CD and you didn't want to burn a burn CD because then it would add extra seconds in between each song. We don't even think about that anymore. That's not even part of our consciousness. So that's just where we are, where we are in the space. And so you got to be careful. And best way to be careful, I think, is to dive in and, and poke around a little bit and experiment. Right. And so, and we have dove in, haven't we? I mean, right now we're like in it. And I feel like we're already talking like another language for, you know, for folks yeah. maybe who are not maybe as familiar with it as other folks, right? So let's back up a little bit. Let's, you know, I guess, zoom out, you know, on a certain level, and let's parse some things, okay? So, you know, because part, I mean, we're in the weeds now a little bit, right, in terms of the wallets and the currencies and stuff, and boy, it's fun to talk about, and it's cool. But, you know, because ultimately we want to be talking about art and NFTs and what it all means for artists, but I feel like on a certain level we need to discuss the fundamentals a bit, right, and parsing things out. So, because right now, for example, crypto's getting killed and there's a lot of conversation about the run on banks and exchanges and, you know, God bless or God help FTX and all that stuff. But the point is, is that whatever happens with crypto, there are underlying technologies that are great innovations that are changing the world and aren't going anywhere, presumably, right? So, for example, the blockchain, right, which is driving... You know, you can't have crypto, you can't have an NFT without the blockchain, right? And so, so there's some security in knowing, right? There's some safety in knowing that there are fundamentals undergirding all of this that, that are um, perhaps not as precarious. Yeah? Well, you know, if you follow the progress of digital art, you know, and, and you look at events like Ars Electronica in Linz, Austria, that have been seminal in proving the importance of digital art and institutionalizing it, there was never a vehicle for a collector to collect that work in a very simple way. Mm -hmm. So the blockchain really has enabled for important and not important digital art mm -hmm. to, you know, exist, you know, beyond a hard drive, mm -hmm. you know, where like, you know, we've gone through an era where there was an incredible creative stage on the internet that won't ever be seen again because all of those files have disappeared you know yeah. like there were incredible websites created in what's called adobe flash <laughs> that no longer will ever be seen again and 
you know, some of that stuff is actually seminal and, and, and informs all of the motion graphics that we see today. Mm-hmm. Right. So just to pull way, 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 way back. Yes. So, so, and we should probably introduce ourselves a little bit too, right? Um, <laughs> oh, just read it in the pamphlet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> read it in the pamphlet. So one of the things I'm really excited about is I do like fine art consulting. So trying to like help IRL artists get into... No, wait, what is IRL? In real life. In real life. Okay. <laughs> in real life. Acronyms. So like traditional physical artists, right? Yeah. So one of the things I like to say, like I was talking to Kakula at her opening. And she was, and I was like, are you going to do NFT? She's like, no, 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 no. And I'm like, okay, well, imagine every single piece of art that you have in this exhibition. You sell it today, you'll never see another penny. And so, and she was like, oh. I'm like, or you could sell it today as an NFT and you always get a piece of that in perpetuity. You die, your descendants get that in perpetuity. And if so if you think about Van Gogh sold one painting, some people say two, for his whole entire life, and that was to his, like, what, sister-in-law, I think, mm-hmm. that family never sees anything ever again. So beyond that, it's estimated that two-thirds of the collections in the, that are housed in museums could be counterfeit because we have problems with COA, Certificate of Authentication. Now we can prove who was the author of that work. So we have all these, like, incredible tools for artists not to get like in the weeds of the crypto and is it good, is it bad, is it whatever, but just from a documentation standpoint, from an intellectual property standpoint, if you're trying to like dispute who's the original creator of the work, all these wonderful tools for artists where artists have been like without recourse and have had to say, oh, I don't have the money for lawyering or I don't have this or that. It's really like also helped lift many artists out of poverty and given them brand new audiences throughout the globe. So from an art, from a pure like pull way, way, way back, like I don't care about all this other stuff, that's really great. And then if you really don't care about wallets, there's a thing called custodial wallets where you don't even have to have a crypto wallet. Somebody else holds that for you. Should you decide to migrate it out at at a later time, you can do that. So like Legend, who I've partnered with, with the Command Z collection, they did the Michael Reader's collection, they did PlayStation, a bunch of others. Anyway, so they have a what's called a custodial wallet. You can migrate it out of that if you do get a crypto wallet at some point. But if you say, I really don't want to mess with that, you can just have mm-hmm. it there. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of cool. So yeah. we have this, these, we have service, this bridging. Service-oriented platform. We have like bridging technologies. Right. I mean, that's what Starbucks is doing with their journey stamps. It's like, it's if you're a Starbucks loyalty program holder, you already, all your shit just moved over to the blockchain. You just don't know it. At some point, that's a, a custodial wallet. So your wallet, you're saying, your own wallet is a non-custodial wallet. Sounds confusing. But at some point in time, maybe Starbucks will allow you to do that. And then you can start trading your loyalty points. So it's... We don't talk about like we have a web, like I'm starting a business. I have a website. We don't say that. It's assumed that you would have a website. It's assumed that you would have social media. It's assumed because the technology is now like it's non-existent. It's just part of doing business. Well, it's become, yeah, it's become part of the air we breathe, right? Yes. Daniel, so I want to define this a little bit because I feel like initially, and maybe to your point earlier about you guys being like early adopters and sort of on the tip of the knife, just early adopters, I mean, really trailblazing, right? This new world. I think initially there was some confusion. I say initially, and for myself, a couple of years ago, I noticed that there was um, not much distinction, seemingly, between NFTs and art. Like people thought, well, wait a minute, how is the NFT art? Is it art? And of course, it, I don't like the way it looks. It looks kind of janky and whatever. But it turns out, right, that NFTs are really 
a certificate of ownership. The art is separate on some level, and then the NFT proves certificate, COI, certificate of ownership or authenticity. Talk a little bit about how at Nomad, you guys are working with artists to you know, create their art, but then you know, link it to the blockchain via NFTs. I will answer that, but first I just want to say that the way that you just described that whole thing, like we should just transcribe that. <laughs> because it really is that is like exactly the whole thing mm-hmm. uh, the only thing that i would add is the piece about provenance which i'd love to hear you describe because i'm sure you can do it better than me but when an artist sells something to someone and they sell the nft and it lives on the blockchain you can see where it's changed hands right you can see who's owned it so wouldn't it be cool if you had the money to buy a van gogh piece and you saw that it was owned by you know Thomas Jefferson's, you know, it just is cool to be able to see the prominence. And I think that's also part of the storytelling, right? And it um, adds value to the work right. as it goes. So, so like there's blue chip collections where you see, oh, these certain people owned it. And then that, that social capital adds value to it as well, where you wouldn't necessarily see that. I mean, gallers can speak to that anecdotally and you could see it in the transfer of provenance on the COA and things like that. But this is public. So then you could be like, hey, you know, so as that's going up for auction or, you know, whatever, then people go, oh, you know, I want a piece of that. Totally. Or I don't want a piece of it now. You know? Well, I'm, you know, I'm sort of reminded I recently had to, I hate cars, by the way, I hate them, but I had to recently buy one and it was a used one. And, but I was able to go on carfax.com and see all the accidents that that car had been in or what have you. And that's sort of an analogous to what you're talking about. This idea that, oh boy, I can see the history of this object, right? Who owned it? What happened to it? Whatever. And then also there are people that might have owned that NFT at one point who weren't culturally significant. And then maybe 10 years later, this becomes someone that is now selling artwork for $100,000 and now there's a connection point and now you can reach out to that artist and connect with them and say, look, you know, and and all of a sudden it opens up this relationship building aspect, which really for me is what this whole thing has been about. So kind of to answer your question, look, I think that there was some great stuff that was talked about in the previous panel about being true to yourself and being an artist and that really resonated with me as not an artist, right? Just as a person. But I think that artists in the NFT space, ability to tell the story behind their art and to connect with other people, those are the two things that the Web3 space, I think, is allowed for. There are events that you can go to. If you have an NFT in your wallet, you can go show that you have that NFT, which means that you're part of the community, and you can go and have access to this event. And then essentially, you're meeting with other people that were there at that point of time or other people that are part of that community. And all of a sudden, there's this experience component. So... When we're, you know, helping artists sell their art, we're trying to give them a platform to tell their story, but it's really about helping them build relationships with people that are outside of their standard network. And once you build a relationship, all of a sudden it just brings so much light to the story and builds confidence in people and starts to get, you know, remove some of the blind spots that people have. Yeah. Ronnie, so I'm really interested, though, in the connection in what tech, in this case, the blockchain, NFTs, what it can do and how it will bridge the gap between more conventional, traditional art galleries and artists moving forward. Because the promise of the smart contract, to Rad's point, is this idea of commissions, if you will, into perpetuity, because historically that's never happened, right? The artist makes an art, it sells it once, they make money once, and then that's it. But, you know, technology, generally speaking, in this case, NFTs, I mean, you know, I'm 52. I'll put it this way. It's a young person's game. I'm trying to catch up. 
But for artists who maybe are more you know, seasoned veteran artists who are more traditional or conventional in their practice, how are those galleries and artists going to be able to start using this technology so that they can get in on that kind of commission structure when what they've created is an actual object? Yeah. This year in the auction that I curated for Christie's, that is an ongoing sale that I brought to them called Trespassing that I do every year. We had a work in there, and this is a sale that combines contemporary art and NFTs. Mm-hmm. And that was actually the first time that, that a major auction house has integrated the art in that way. And that's part of what I, part of my work is this kind of convergent space. Mm-hmm. But there was a piece by an Italian artist named Sky Golpe, mm-hmm. and he, it was a canvas, but he actually auctioned the certificate of authenticity. So the sale was positioned as an auction for the certificate, and you actually get the painting Mm. as a result of winning the certificate. Yeah, so reverse engineered a little bit. Yes, and it was tremendously successful, and he set his own world record. I think we sold for Mm 70000 and, you know, the Italian media went really bonkers over it, and that really signals a, you know, a level of adoption that must be integrated into the contemporary art space that looks at what works in the NFT space mm-hmm. and how the contemporary art space can integrate what works yeah. and really to focus on the functional aspects of it and and really you know start to think about NFTs in more sophisticated ways as opposed to kind of lumping everything right, together right, right. which is kind of what we were talking about earlier how you know there's a great misconception that kind of every NFT is the same thing yeah and they're not. Right. And that, you know, I think that once you start to get artists understanding how they may or may not extend their practice, if they're a contemporary artist, they may or may not extend their practice into the digital space mm-hmm. and, and produce digital work. They may or may not do that. But the fundamental aspect of creating an NFT as provenance and as a an element of proof of ownership and so on, like that is absolutely valuable to them right think right. about a, think about an autograph right like if you know patrick ewing is your favorite basketball player and you know someone said here i have an autograph picture and here's a certificate of authenticity you're going based on maybe the signal you're able to glean from the document and how good it looks or your trust with the person that's giving it to you but i could just you know make my own certificate of authenticity i could hire a designer to make something look totally real so how do you know it's real same thing with art right and the blockchain proves who created it, where it came from, that it's, you, you can't mess with it. The word that comes it's to mind, it's a, it's a registration, right? It's a, it's a ledger, right? Ledger that, um, of own, yeah. Well, I'm thinking of that car too, like it had that I bought, like it had a title, right? I was right. like, oh, okay, yeah, no, this, I can really own this because I have the title. But, it, but all of that lives on, I don't want to use a buzzword here, mm-hmm. but lives at the helm of an institution. It's centralized. Right. Yeah. It's, you know, right. that could go under and then all of the information that's tied to your title could just disappear. Right. You know, I mean, we can't even begin to imagine how much corruption has happened in our lifetimes and all of these institutions that are household names. Mm-hmm. This is going to start to chip away at that. Well, point. so the flip side of what you're saying is part of the beauty and the power of this is its decentralization, right? So it's spread out across a network, parsed out, so that if one goes down, everything is still protected. As long as we have the internet and electricity, bro. <laughs> well, that's what, that was my next question. So a guy I know, his company is responsible for running the cable through 
the, across the bottom of the ocean, uh, across the Pacific, it connecting North America to Asia. And basically, it's one cord that, you know, connects all the internet. And, you know, God forbid somebody cut that cord, things are going to go dark, right? So, but I mean, listen, I mean, <laughs> that's probably not going to happen. So let's assume, let's think positive, people. Things are going to go. I love the decentralization, but even if no one cuts the cord and even if everything's safe, there's still humanity we got to deal with, right? So for, you know, the run on, we were talking about FTX earlier, you know, the whole crypto thing right now in terms of some of the exchanges. I mean, you know, and I want to parse this out too, because the conversation around art and artists and what artists are doing and how the artists use NFTs to sort of prove ownership and provenance and authenticity, and that's a powerful conversation. And however, we have this related fundamental, right, of the of the crypto market and sort of what's happening in exchanges these days. And, you know, I just wrote down some things. And it'll be interesting. You know, I want to preface this by saying, you know, for two or three years now, right, I think we've been saying, oh, it's the early days. You know, it's the early days. It's a wild time right now. You know, markets mature. Thing, you know, there's a life cycle of things. You know, in the grand scheme of things, we're still early days. But we're way more mature, it feels like, now than we were five years ago. It's all relative, right? Right, right. So... And that's exciting, and it's so interesting, Ronnie, what you were talking about with Christie's in terms of how people are, how the art world is adapting and innovating and, and leveraging this technology. And yet there are these fundamentals that we're having to grapple with, right? And so one of the things that I always found interesting about NFTs and digital art specifically is that it still lives within a broader context of the economic landscape, so to speak. And, you know, my opinion or my observation over the years is that artist challenge, number one, is an economic one in that supply outstrips demand. There's way more art than people buying art. It's a fundamental problem. And when NFTs came on, it was so exciting because I think a lot of artists felt like, oh, this is, this is going to be the silver bullet that I need to pay my bills and not be broke and blah, blah, blah. But we all knew, right, that it was a shiny new object, exciting new thing. The fundamentals are still in place. Like, there are still, as we've already established, not a lot of people in the game. We want to get more people in the game. But even as we do this and even as things are maturing, we're seeing things fluctuate. I mean, Ronnie, you, know, you mentioned Christie's. Apparently, they sold $150 million in 2021. I think you were, you know, instrumental in a lot of that. And I heard that this year they're only selling 4.6 million. Yep. I mean, that's a huge drop. Huge drop. Yeah. And, you know, the, what you have to realize is that, you know, the level of speculation that was in place was, you know, immeasurable, you know, and you had, you know, this inherent tie to crypto as well. So the rise of crypto and the bull market in crypto really led to that market kind of result. Mm -hmm. And then this drop-off has really been very correlated with the drop in crypto and, and how, you know, there's this pretty much inherent tie between NFTs and crypto. And that's where I think we are really needing to make progress at this moment is to really separate those two things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because... Digital art and NFTs do not need to correlate right. to the crypto market. Right, right. And, and this is an important this aspect to the conversation. Yes. Well, and I mean, listen, I want to be clear, right? Nature, life, you know, whether we're talking about digital art or crypto or just the S&P, these things have been flow. Yeah. 
I mean, it's just natural. It's just part of the process. And we don't need to freak out, <laughs> right? Sure. We want to be thoughtful and, and centered and, and be mindful. But it's going to take leaders like you guys. It's going to take, you know, I was reading, you know, people, right? I mean, he, you know, became the poster child, right, for the hype, right? It's like, you know, all, you know, sold his piece. But I think he, and Ronnie, you and I were talking about this earlier, I think he had a very sensible awareness of yeah. what was happening at the time, right? And I think he accepts his responsibility yes. in creating an, a new stage for where we are. Because by creating a studio, by creating facilities for artists to produce their art, it starts to take the focus away from the money. Yeah. It starts to put the focus on the work well, and, and let's just clarify this. So he's taking some of his money, because his piece sold for, was on 100 million? 69. 69, 69 million. The sexiest Subsequently, sale. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. their sale for like 29 million. Okay. So like he sold, like in that, in, in that Christie's, crazy year yeah. that like a hundred million dollars was him yeah. right by right. himself right amazing but he's has this very healthy perspective on what's happening and he's using some of that money right to create a yeah, museum in south carolina studio in, back in south east, carolina yeah. yeah in a place where you know this sort of facility this sort of these sort of opportunities wouldn't ever be seen mm -hmm. so to a a great extent, he's going to be responsible. I see the potential for him to be responsible to really foster, you know, this generation of artists. Yeah. I have a question for how many people are artists? How many people are collectors? How many people are artists? Okay. How many people are collectors? Awesome. How many people are like, would consider yourself both? Okay. Well, I think that one of the most exciting things is the collector experience with mm. NFTs. And so this is something that I spend a lot of time on in terms of also when I'm advising artists and gallerists. So one of my favorite collaborations and consulting opportunities I had was working with Mary Kronowski of KP Projects. So does anybody know who Mary Kronowski is of KP Projects? Okay, <laughs> so she was like Shepard Fairey's first gallerist, Todd Shore's first gallerist, um, has been really instrumental in like fostering emerging artists in the contemporary lowbrow, pop culture, pop surrealist art world. So she had the vision to do an NFT drop with Johnny Comanzi Rodriguez. So I worked with them on that drop. And so one of the things that we see is some of these established IRL artists who are coming into this space, they're able to provide a collector experience that many of their collectors had never had before that. So what I mean by that is you've got access now to that artist. So as a collector of A Little Beast, you have the opportunity to watch Johnny or Kamanzi do live drawing. You have the opportunity to, as a holder, be raffled one of one drawings from him physical paintings, art toys, all kinds of stuff. You can talk to him. And so there's other artists who have done this really successfully. And like Dalek has done this. Um, Risk has done this. Greg Mike has done this. Where And then you have a different spectrum of pieces for people to collect. So before that, before NFTs, most of these artists, you, regular people couldn't afford to collect their work. You know, like they're starting at like, you know, maybe maybe for a small piece, you know, $3,000. But, you know, the typical run is around 10000 and up. So now with NFTs, you could buy an additioned piece for maybe a few hundred dollars. You could buy a one-of-one one piece for maybe, you know, half of what a physical piece would be. And then you have the opportunity because you hold that, what's called utility, you can then have access to raffles and things to be able to get 
physical pieces, like really, really high value physical pieces, or go to events with these artists and things like that. So I think as an artist, when you're thinking about getting into Web3, what are the things that you could comfortably do? And to speak to the panel before, right? You're buying the artist, not the art. So what are the things within your community and your collector community that are high value that they may not be able to get from another artist without the utility of the NFT and, and of blockchain. So what's also interesting too is you can do things like have art that has claimable, like basically rewards. So you saw this with Damien Hurst, right? You could choose to have the physical piece or you could choose to have the digital piece. All of that information is stored in the metadata, like what the piece constitutes and different things. So the metadata is like kind of the information like that's behind it. And so you could say, okay, well, a piece that has red in it, say. You could say any piece that has red in it could claim a physical piece. Some people may not claim that. They may not claim that physical painting. So then you as a collector can sell that. If you don't want that physical piece, you can sell that. That metadata is still has not been claimed. It's like a scratch off. You haven't scratched it off, right? So you can sell that and that has high value in that that piece, that extra component hasn't been claimed. So you think about it maybe from kind of a gamification standpoint yeah. to say, what are the things that I would love to do or say or experience with my collectors that I can't do? That's why Instagram's considered web too. You're just broadcasting. You're not really having a dialogue. The reason that Web3 lives on Twitter is because you're constantly in communication. Artists are in communication with their collectors. And I've seen Twitter spaces where you've got like significant artists, quote unquote celebrities, people like that coming into Twitter spaces, expecting for the genuflection to happen when they come in and people's like, I don't care because they're not part of the community. So I would say if you're wanting to get into Web3, like, be like, I want to have dialogue with my collectors. I want to have dialogue with other artists. In Web3, there is no competition. This is the most beautiful thing to me that I've ever seen. All the artists work together. There's no competition. It's collaboration. And so you've got high value blue chip artists that are selling for insane amounts of money who are like, you can get in their DMs and be like, I need help. I don't know how to do this or that. They'll answer you. They'll answer you. They'll help you. One of the communities I think that does the best job at this mm -hmm. is Ghost Club. It's Mumbot. Mumbot is a blue chip artist within Web3, but she has a Discord where, and her Ghost Club account will promote artists all the time, like retweeting, repost, boosting other artists. But in Ghost Club Discord, you can go talk to artists. You can talk about techniques. You can talk about marketing strategies. You can watch them live draw. They have artist hours. So it's almost like this online collective, and these artists are all over the world. Would it be wrong to sort of characterize what you're describing as like a parallel universe? <laughs> totally parallel universe. Right? In, in the Web2 art world, everybody's your competition. Mm. Don't want to see the techniques. Nobody's going to see what's good. If you're in a group show, I don't want you to see my work before I get there. You know, all of this like secretive, you know, kind of working. But in Web3, it's like, hey, yo, I figured out this trick on Procreate. It's hey, the realization it's of abundance mindset. Abundance mindset. Right. That's what's so cool about it. And you can meet your heroes. Like I have had all these artists that I follow for like 20, 25 years that I just have adored. And now they're my good friends because you have this access to the people that you respect and love and would like to work with. There's no fourth wall. Like really like, and I would say the most effective <laughs> advice I can give for anybody coming to Web3, and I say this often, is come with your hand up, not out. So if you say, 
hey, I can help you with this. I may not know how to do this, but I do know how to do this. Or I just, I'm just here to learn. What can I do to help? All the doors in the world will open to you. It's really like a place that's a really great place for those who are altruistic, those who are community-minded, who are collaborative-minded. If that sounds like you, then Web3 is a place for you, in my opinion. Timing. And now it's great yes. timing right? yes. because with all of the noise and all of the people who were, I don't want to say in it for the wrong reasons because what does that even mean, but for the people that are leaving the space because they were just there to make money and they weren't there to be part of the community and to give back and to support people and to collaborate, those are the people that are still there and are willing to support you and connect you with people and give you different ideas. And, you know, I, I think... And for that, nothing. And, and for, for nothing. nothing. But, but it's, yeah. it's, I think it's not for nothing. It's because we know that, you know, rising tide lifts all boats. Yeah. So it's for nothing. It's not like a transaction doesn't have to, you don't have to pay someone, but we all know that like we've given, we've gotten so much by giving and helping other people. That well, is, but, it's obvious. It's just behaviorally, yeah. you know, there isn't another option. But Daniel, is it, would it be, you know, naive or, or romantic, too romantic of me to suggest that part of the reason why people are so willing to sort of put in sweat equity is because they appreciate the fact that they're on the a new frontier and they're totally. establishing a new reality, if you will, not to be too hyperbolic about it. But, but that's, I mean, in, in Rad, you, you said the word community several times. And that to me was a bit of a, a revelation in my journey around learning something about this is because the word community kept coming up again and again. And to the extent that an artist, no matter where they're at in their career, can, you know, on Web3, leveraging NFTs as keys or passes into various opportunities or what have you. It's this idea that you're building, you're building your little world. You're building your community of fans and collectors. And they'll evangelize on your behalf. Yeah. Because here's the thing, like to your point, Danny, rising tide lifts all ships, right? So if you have a piece of art that you love and you have an artist that you love, you want them to be able to continue to make more work. So you will promote them. You will retweet them. You will post about it. It's a badge of honor to have their work in your wallet. So you'll talk about them more and more. And so it kind of like is this really wonderful like ecosystem where collectors are promoting artists. And so it takes a lot of the burden mm -hmm. off of artists. It takes so, you know, I, my partner is a fine artist, Danko there. He's a, he's an oil Danko. painter. Deco, <laughs> and also is a generative artist and NFT artist, digital artist. But I saw prior to NFTs, like it's so much work. Like you don't want to have to take all of your creative energy and put that into promoting yourself, right? You want to take your creative energy and put it into producing work. So then, if you can have collectors that are that are your community, they are like your community, your army, your foot Advocate, soldiers yeah. that will like help you promote because they want to see you be in a position where you can create more work that they can collect more of. So, you know, that's what's really cool. And then to opening up to a global collector community prior to Web3, I saw a lot of artists who just were like focused on maybe where they were regionally. So like, or just the big city. So it's like LA, New York, and then you're having to do these schlogs back and forth for these IRL events. Now it's like collectors in Hong Kong, collectors in Korea, collectors in a lot of collectors in Australia. Australia is very crypto friendly. So you've got a huge amount of collectors in Australia. So thinking about also how can you serve those communities from the work that you produce. And what's really cool is that you almost see like instead of like scratching your head for what to create, you're like, oh, you can't create fast enough because there's so many different right. moving pieces and levels that you can create for. So you can still create those like high effort blue chip 
experiences, but then you can also create little small things where like maybe you can do a merch drop or something for your collectors or you can do addition prints or, you know, things that those things too, especially if they're on the blockchain, they can be traded. So then you can still continue to get secondary sales from that mm -hmm. as well. So like, say you had a small addition piece that you sold for, I'm just using fiat dollars because we're all over with crypto. So say you had a small addition collection of say like a hundred and you sold each of them for $25. If there's utility tied to it, like say a raffle, then you may start to inspire secondary trading where that instead turns from like $25 to a hundred, 200. To just use Danko's collection as an example, his first collection was 100 bananas and the sale price at that time, I think it was like 0.03 ETH. And that was when ETH was kind of pumping. So let's call it like, you know, $60, $70. Now I think the floor on it is like 0.2 or something, even with the depressed market and no utility because the traders are like, oh my gosh, now this artist has done other things because he's gone on to do other things. They want that more Genesis um, historical collection. So not financial advice as we like to say, but looking at 2021 artists is a good collector strategy as well, because I do believe there will be historic provenance to that kind of like, it wasn't the first part of when we started seeing NFT fine art, but it was like the biggest proliferation of it. And so there are collectors who are looking at historic NFTs and things like that. I would say with some sort of urgency to try to get in within this freshman, sophomore, junior year of fine art NFT creation because if we look at art history there's provenance to some of those early like impressionists and pop artists and things like that you would want to be in that class yeah. i would think as a creator so i want to make sure we leave time for questions because i know people are probably they've got lots of questions but before we transition to questions ronnie and daniel i want to ask you because not everybody has a rad in their life you know to coach them <laughs> through uh, as an artist right uh, to help them you know launch or what have you you, you can though like you can she hosts yes. twitter spaces she's so right open. oh interesting so that's the community part that's the community part or free. You can have <laughs> yeah. but it but it's not for free right because yeah. you know it you're going to get as much out of it as you yeah. put in so. right 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 so my question to you guys is about well for artists who are here who are new to the space i mean let me just be oversimplistic about it this sounds really complicated <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this sounds scary. You know what I mean? There's a language, there's a culture, there's ethics, there's like all kinds of things going on that I might know nothing about. And by the way, I'm, you know, I'm a struggling artist. I don't have money to be paying, you know, for someone to help me and I don't know what to do. So, I mean, how does an artist even get started? Ronnie, what's your advice? And Daniel Nomad, how does Nomad work with its artists? So help us understand how you get from zero to hero when you don't know anything. Well, if I'm throwing in my two cents, it's really spending time to understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. You're not going to really, you know, become a player in the space unless you devote time to it. And, and like you said, it, it is complicated. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you need to devote time to really educate yourself and to become part of the community. So the community will respond when you're there and participating. Mm -hmm. So participation is also a crucial aspect. So, okay, so let me interrupt you, though. When you say community, so what's a gateway or an access point? Discord? Twitter. I mean, or Twitter? Twitter? Uh, okay. Discord is slightly more advanced. Yeah. Okay, okay, so let's break it down. So Twitter. Yes. The Twitter that we he now hear a lot about. Step number one. Elon! Anyway, so yes, Step Twitter's a good, okay, start yeah. there. I'm going to just double down on yeah. what Ronnie said. So much noise, you know, in the Twitterverse over the last week, mm -hmm. which... Personally, you know, 
is annoying and frustrating. But Twitter is definitely, you know, get a Twitter account if you don't have one, you know, have zero followers, follow 30 people, follow 50 people, it doesn't matter, don't worry about the metrics. There's something called Twitter Spaces. Twitter Spaces came after Clubhouse Rooms. So for those of you don't, who don't know what Clubhouse Rooms were, it's basically like audio rooms. It's like if the three of us were on stage, like we are now, and you were in the audience, one of you wanted to raise your hand and come up and sit next to us and talk with us. It's like the audio version of that. You just open up Twitter, you go to the top of Twitter, like the top of your phone, and you'll see different spaces that are happening. And the spaces that will be presented to you are the spaces that people that you're following are in. So you want to make sure you're following people that you care about, that you want to connect with, that you want to learn from, and then you click on it. And then you join the room. And by joining the room, you're essentially just coming here and sitting down in one of the seats. It's just happening you know, on your phone, like a, an audio room. And then you can listen and you start to learn. And then what Rad was saying about raising your hand, there's a little button that you could press that says, raise your hand. And then there's like a little digital hand that raises. And then the people that are hosting the room or that are on stage can say, okay, person that's raising their hand, we want to invite you upstage. So I would say, please come up on stage and join us and talk. We're just hanging out and talking. You can say, hi, my name is Daniel. I'm an artist. I don't know anything about NFTs. I feel like I'm so late to the game. I feel like I missed the boat. Am I crazy? Or is this, you know, what am I doing here? And then someone like Rad or maybe someone completely different is going to answer that. And then all of a sudden a conversation is going to happen. And instead of it being us pontificating and you listening, it's more like we're all hanging out, having a conversation. And I would say, I know it's a lot, but to give yourself 50 hours, 100 hours over the next year, and just say, like, look, you know, every Friday night, once my week winds down, I'm just going to spend a couple of hours in Twitter spaces or every Friday night and like maybe 30 minutes at lunch on Monday, I promise you, it's like learning a new language. I lived in Argentina for five years. I studied Spanish leading up to that. When I got there, my Spanish still wasn't great. I wasn't myself in Spanish in Argentina. I was just this foreigner. But once I got a command of the language and I learned some of the lumfardo and some of the little nuances of the way that people say things, all of a sudden I could express who I was and my personality in Argentine Spanish. And all of a sudden I was a contributor. I was making my mark in this new society because I learned the language. It just takes time. But it doesn't take high IQ. It doesn't take like this ability to understand what crypto is. I'm just some guy. I just was there early by mistake and I spent the time to learn it and become a part of the community. And you know, I am still learning every day, but I now get it. But that's it. Just jumping in. I would follow Danny and look at what he built with Nomad Boulevard. One of the best, I think, Web3 gallery experiences I've ever seen. I can't think of one that I saw that was better. It had all the major mechanics of an IRL art exhibition. It had all the major mechanics of a Web3 exhibition. It had also with that kind of AR component, which creates this viral marketing moment. I still, if I see somebody who's wearing green screen green, I'm like, hey, wait up. Let me show you this awesome Instagram filter. So from a marketing, strategic, community, human experience perspective, the thing that you all put together with Rabbi's Nomad Boulevard exhibition, unparalleled. I don't think you could have done it better. I can't think of one thing that I would have done differently. And my background is as a creative strategist. Um, that's what I did before NFT. So working with enterprise level brands on creative strategy. So I would follow Danny for any artist who doesn't know how to do like smart contracts, mint your collection, anything like that. Okay, I'm going to say it slowly so you can write it down or follow it now. There is a Twitter space typically on Wednesdays at 10 a.m. hosted by 
three people. Quantum Variant is his Twitter handle. Jeff Jag is his Twitter handle. And Adult Arts is her Twitter handle. So they do weekly spaces, usually on Wednesdays, on how to write smart contracts for artists. And so typically they do with Manifold, which is like a really kind of easy, frictionless experience. What you want to do as an artist is you don't want to do a thing called lazy minting, which is going onto one of these exchanges and using their tools because then they own your contract. You want to own your own contract. So if you don't have the money to pay a dev to create a contract, oh, there's another good Twitter account. It's Jen Stein who has adult arts. She also has a Twitter account called Jen and F teach and where she posts tons of TikTok videos and YouTube videos that walks you through step-by-step how to create your own smart contract, answering security questions, all kinds of things like that. YouTube is your friend. TikTok is your friend. These folks are really, really great. You can come up on stage and say, I know nothing at all about, I don't even have a wallet. They're super patient. They're really wonderful. You can DM them. They're friends of mine. I trust them. Tell them Rad sent you. Tell them Rad (laughs) sent you. But then look at who they follow. Follow who they follow. But Jeff and each of those folks are all artists, but they're also devs. They're also developers. So they can come from both the empathetic standpoint of both to say, like, I know this is scary and complicated and overwhelming. And as Danny said, you know, trade maybe the podcast that you listen to. If, If you're an artist and you're sitting there and you're drawing all day, you may be listening to another kind of podcast throw these podcasts on, throw these Twitter spaces on rather, because not only are you just listening to it, you can contribute. So if you go, "Uh uh-oh, I heard a question, I have something I need to ask, you can then request to come on stage and join the conversation where you cannot do that on YouTube. You can't do that in TikTok. You can't do that anywhere else. This is going to be, in my opinion, in years forward, probably a paid service at some point or a subscription service. Right now you have access to the most brilliant people literally in the world and you, there's no paywall to it. So like, run, and like run also, as fast as you can. And they also have access to you. Mm-hmm. Yes. And they may go, wow, this is exactly who I was looking. We've I mean, so many spaces where like, yeah. you know, the people that are hosting the space are, are the people that have made a couple million dollars in selling NFTs and yeah. they're well known in the space. And then someone comes on stage with four followers mm-hmm. um, who, you know, just has never done any digital art and they're just true artists and they know so much about who they are as an artist and what they've contributed. And hearing that person talk on stage is not only refreshing, but everyone is just like, oh my God, tell us more. And then all of a sudden, you know, that person's like, well, how do I mint an NFT? And then that person, you know, and then someone's like, hi, I just sent you a DM, a direct message. And I would love to buy your Genesis NFT. Genesis NFT meaning your first NFT. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, someone's like, oh my God, I just sold an NFT. I just came mm-hmm. here to say hello and ask questions. That's the vibe. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to go on a Twitter space and sell your first NFT, <laughs> but I'm just saying that if you're someone that's brand new to the space and you were going to set an achievable goal for yourself, it would be just going into one NFT art related Twitter space, raising your hand and get on stage. Like make that your goal and then we'll all start, start to happen after that. Oh, so speaking of asking questions, I want to open up the floor to anybody that has questions. And I want to encourage you guys to come use the mic because we're trying to record the Q&A. No pressure, just encouraging. Does not look like you want to come to the mic. Just uh, ra- raise your hand and uh, project, project. I'm a photography-based artist, and I have a body of work that has been quite popular online for years, very shareable. 
So I've been super interested in the idea of the blockchain and having provenance and certificate of authenticity and all that. I talked to a bunch of friends who are successful in the NFT space. I got too overwhelmed and scared away. <laughs> I wonder if there is like a half way where I could still maybe I don't know if minting is the only way to do this, but how do I enter that space to at least maybe register my work that way and dip my toe in that water? Because I think a lot of us have body of work that maybe it could be interesting. Or is it mostly uh, on the NFT space to create new pieces, digital apps, or what do you see and what would you recommend? Do you want me to? <laughs> I'm looking. I'm, okay, I you was looking to... at you and Ronnie. Okay. <laughs> I, I have an answer, but... I mean, here's the thing that will make it, in my opinion, simplest to anybody. It's the approach. So imagine you were going to do something in an IRL gallery. Would you want that gallery to own your work forever or would you want to own it? Would you want that gallery to show new work or old work? And I can't necessarily answer that question because it works for each person's own strategy moving forward. Now, certainly there's been folks that, because look, you're not dealing with a gallery gatekeeper in this traditional thing of like, don't show work that you, you know, don't show work that you haven't shown in the gallery and all. You are your own gallerist. You are your own banker. You're your own everything. So it's a little like intimidating. But I would say too, there's a lot of folks who, because you own your copyright, at least in the US. So even if you've sold work, you can mint sold work as additioned work. I would say as a courtesy, you would probably want to extend to the holder of that, one of the pieces, one of the additions, right? But you can mint sold work, you can mint old work, all of those kinds of things. Just mint it on your own contract. You don't want to mint it like, because you can do it easily today. You could go on OpenSea, create a crypto wallet, blah, 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 mint it like five seconds, no problem, easy but they then have your contract. So you want to be able to move that around. If they go under, like, you know, they've had some recent controversy, who knows? You want to be able to hold that. But I would say go into some of these spaces. You could also then say, hey, I just want to do like a small collection, see how it goes, you know, like an additioned, an additioned work or something, or take three pieces. I would also say that Maybe don't start minting until you really understand what's going on because you may mint stuff that from a provenance standpoint will be your very first work and you go, oh, I don't want that to be my first work. Or maybe I'm changing or maybe I'm shifting or maybe I'm being informed by the other work that I'm seeing there. There's a really great, for photographers out there, there's a really great photography community. And I think one of the people who's doing really good work for helping to like support other photographers is John Knopf. So it's a J-O-H-N-K-N-O-P-F, I believe. And then, you know, you've got Lindsay Burns, who's also a photographer. You've got Kath Samard. I just want to make a point yeah. on what you said so I don't forget. And follow those people, I would say, because they'll help. There's an acronym in the space called D-Y-O-R. Yeah. <laughs> it stands for Do Your Own Research. Yeah. And so my answer to your question is previous work that you've done and future work, all of it belongs on the blockchain. Yes. So my answer to you is yes, go for it, but also do your own research. And like Rad was saying, get a little bit more comfortable with how other photographers are benefiting from leveraging the blockchain before you do it. I would say like there's a rush to learn and get in, but there's not a rush. Don't FOMO in. Everybody's always like, don't FOMO because there's like this urgency and you rush in because it's forever. Yeah. It's like forever, forever. And, like, what, and your photography. So if I have a high resolution version, you know, that I took from the internet of your photography, you know, I have it, I guess. I, I own it because there's no proof that you were the photographer. I guess, 
you know, culturally we could come to our senses and say, well, who took this? Or, you know, can we look at some of the, like we could do some research, but there's no real ownership. Maybe there's a certificate of authenticity on the blockchain. It's going to map to the digital wallet that put that token on the blockchain, which is you. That's, that's really powerful to me. Yeah. No, 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 no. It's changed significantly. It's changed. There's new contracts where it's not as expensive to mint and it's not as expensive to buy. So there's certain, there's different contracts based on the way the contracts are written where it can reduce gas fees and it can reduce the way. So there are, so Manifold is a good one. There's also Async Art, Async. Coinbase a, has a good one too. Co Coinbase, What's yeah. But like I say, like, I'm not an artist who's minting and I'm not a dev, but what I can say is I spend time around artists who are using these tools. And async art also allows you to put, I've seen the interface and it looks really, really, really easy, but I don't know if you own the contract with async as well, but in Manifold you definitely do. But I would spend some time with those folks, those three folks that anybody who asks me, I send them to them because those are artists who are going to help you out of their own, you know, altruism, you can also reach out to devs, like actual dev firms. So I haven't worked with them personally, but I've heard good things about Pagzi Tech, P-A-G-Z-I. So you can work with actual dev teams and then frequently they'll take either an upfront charge, if you're doing like a larger collection, an upfront charge, or they could take what's called distribution. So they could take a percentage of your contract in perpetuity. So you have to decide like, is this somebody I want to work with long-term? Some artists work with dev teams long-term. They're part of the partners um, in that process. The benefit of working with a dev team for larger collections is that they can help you with security. So famously, there was a project called AccuDreams, beautiful project by Micah Johnson, and the contract was flawed. They didn't test it properly. So there's like around $30 million that are locked up in a contract. So it's basically the, so instead of going to the artist, instead of going to help fund further endeavors, it would be like shooting it to the sun. So that $30 million, and that takes that liquidity out of the ecosystem. So you don't want to have like your collector's first <laughs> encounter with you being like really sad and debilitating. And you also want to make sure that liquidity is able to move through the system as well. What's really cool about trading art this way, think about the art that you may have bought in your life that you maybe aren't into anymore, and it just sits there and you kind of don't know what to do with it. In this way, you can continue to trade it and buy it and sell it. And then also you can shrink and swell it because, you know, you can have big, large digital displays. You can have projection displays. Now we have wearables where you can like cycle through your art and wearables. So I think that from a collector standpoint and a futurist minded standpoint, it's a good thing to investigate and get involved in because you're offering so many different because we have so many digital nomads in the world now, they can't drag their collections with them everywhere. But now I think we'll be having tools like you had your infinite objects, which is a token frame. Infinite objects is something to really look into. It's a beautiful way to display art. But then collectors can take that with them and they can display that in their home or they can take also, it with them know, going, through other display. Going back to places. quickly what I was saying before about extension of identity, you know, this is kind of being traditional, but collectors or people that are investing money in art, they'll buy a piece of art and they'll put it in their home and they'll appreciate it. They'll feel something when they look at it. When their friends and family or people come over to their house, they can show it off. They can flex it. Younger generations are spending more and more time in the metaverse, right? In digital environments, either gaming or... And we all know instinctually, I believe, that 
there's only going to be more of that as we go. I hope not for some reasons, but you know, it's evolution. And if you are able to have your work sold and displayed in those digital environments, you know, that's part of the evolution of art and collectors and how people are extending their identities by owning your art. Guys, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, <laughs> but we, uh, in the interest of time, we need to move hour. on. And I mean, how great was this, guys? I mean, did you learn something? I, yeah, I feel like my head is like, you know, <laughs> thankfully there was a lot of empty space in there, so it was good. Um, well, if you, I'm sure there are more questions, and we have three amazing experts. Please, you know, get their contact info or bug them, you know, out by the coffee or whatever the case might be. We're going to transition. I know we want to take a little bit of a break. Maybe you guys want to uh, have a bathroom break or something. But then we have Shana coming back up to talk about whether or not public art can save the world with uh, Carmen Zella. So it's, that's going to be an amazing conversation. Thank you, guys. You guys are awesome. Bravo. Bravo. Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Peugeot and Desi Deloro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.